Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Peter, did you hear how fans at a Miami football game used an American flag to catch a falling cat? Did you see that video? No, I didn't see it. I heard about it. Yeah, yeah. so there's. it's a hard video for me to watch, at least. So there's this couple who has uh, season tickets to the games. At every game, they hang an American flag over the railing right in front of their seats. Well, early in the second quarter of the game, people noticed a cat just dangling from the upper deck. Mm. This couple ripped their flag from the zip ties and they stretched it out and created like a landing pad for this poor, terrified cat. Apparently, the cat was desperately trying not to fall, barely hanging on and was so scared he peed. He yeah. On the fans below, he lost control of his bladder. Well, this cat lost his grip, obviously, and fell to the suite level, and the American flag broke the cat's fall to wow. some extent, I guess. So how improbable. What a strange sort of thing. Yeah, assuming it's a feral cat. Yeah. You know, and... In a stadium. In the stadium, and reports now say no one can locate the cat. Apparently, he just was so terrified, he bit a few fans and ran away Let's and see. lost track of him. You know, there's one report that one of the students raised the cat after catching it, raised the cat in the air like it was a successful football catch. Yeah. It was that really... That's not true? It was true. Oh, so someone had the cat and then a cat escaped. Right. Yeah. They caught the cat, transferred the cat, I guess, to another person's hands, and the, that person, you know, raised the cat up like, hey, See, look, I yeah. caught it. Just stupid. Anyway, cat's gone. How can we make this a good ending? <laughs> no good ending. Well, I guess the good part is that uh, they still allow people to display American flags at games still. That's good, but how could we make it a good ending for the cat? I know. Well, I'm trying. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone lived happily ever after. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Hopefully the cat's okay. Okay, Lori, a couple of items from around the world, okay? You remember the recent Olympics and the horse abuse at the modern pentathlon? There's a little update on that. The German coach named Kim Reisner, she uh, struck, reached across the fence and struck the horse Saint Boy, that was the name of the horse, because the horse was not doing what people thought the horse should do, what the rider thought the horse should do. The rider, by the way, her name is Annika Schlu, and uh, her whiny crying face has now been plastered around the internet because she's upset with the horse and they only get to know these horses for a few minutes before the event this is a jumping event the horse did not comply and did not do what the horse was supposed to do so the horse got punched in the face by the coach and then annika also was uh you know vigorously beating and whipping the horse to try to get the the horse Saint Boy to uh, do his job. His job. Anyway, so immediately Reisner, the coach, was suspended from the rest of the Olympics before her case was heard by the disciplinary panel, the International Modern Pentathlon Union. They are the panel. So a final decision has come down, and the coach was ordered to undergo mandatory animal welfare training before she can go on to work again at any major competition. So, animal welfare training. That should fix things, right, Lori? So a little bit about the modern pentathlon, Lori. This is a uh, sport that includes 
the equestrian show, and then fencing, swimming, cross-country running, and laser pistol shooting. So it's a, just a historical collection of skills. Only one of them, the jumping, uh, involves animals. And like I said before, the participants are paired with uh, their horse shortly so they don't get to train with their horse. So this horse, who the previous day did not want to perform properly with a Russian competitor, also, you know, just balked and led to her whipping and led to the coach and all the controversy. As expected, there are uh, opinions about this. PETA comes out and says this is more evidence that we shouldn't use any horses in any activity like this. And sounds reasonable, but there's their position. A more nuanced, I would say, opinion comes from the neuroscientist named Janet Jones. She has a book, Horse Brain, Human Brain, and she is a riding advocate and uh, has been studying the connection between the thinking of horses and people who ride together and how long it takes to develop this sort of intuitive or she thinks wonderful connection between the horse brain and the human brain when they really connect anyway. Her point is that she's not completely critical of, of this. Her world is in horses, uh, but she says that this is an equestrian event, this jumping, and it should have nothing to do with the pentathlon where you've got uh, these athletes interfering with the beauty of uh, equestrian activities. So she's like, leave that out. Jones actually wrote, Quote, last week the Olympic Committee banned a German horse trainer for punching a horse and encouraging a rider to beat it into submission for balking at the entry gate and refusing to jump. No one needs to call out the bad of such human behavior. It's obviously wrong. So that's her first thing. But then she has her butt. Unfortunately, a few abusive individuals exist in every realm, selling the reputations of the entire classes, colors, and categories of people, da 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 So she goes there. Ultimately, she concludes that this... Sport shouldn't be part of the uh, pentathlon, but she comes from a uh, horse, you know, loving culture. Okay? Of course, then there's the general public who just want to watch the Olympics and not be subjected to uh, abusive images. Uh, what will they do with this? I'm, I don't know. Maybe a couple people will get inspired or come to realize what can really happen behind the scenes. Which probably happens all the time yeah, behind that's the scenes. What I was going to say, we're just pe getting a peek here. Yeah, that's right. Probably, yeah. So what do you think? Should they change the modern pentathlon to modern, what's the word? Quad, quadra, quadrathon? Quad, quad something. How about four events and just call it a day, okay? We'll see if this humane training does anything useful. I uh, doubt it. Oh, come on. <laughs> okay, now for something completely different. You know the uh, singer, Billie Eilish? Okay, yeah, okay, well, she's uh, 19. She's quite a hot sensation because she's, uh, well, she's huge. And I'll tell you, Lori, she actually has a fair amount of musical talent. She's singer-songwriter, and uh, she's uh, pretty good. And like, has, actually. Actually, her own voice shines through. It's not this, you know, electron electronic version of a human voice. So she's pretty, pretty hot. Anyway, you know, she got together with... Hollywood and the other night there was this Met Gala you might have seen because some uh, political folks were there. Anyway, the Oscar de la Renta company, they decided they were going to design a gown for her. And the gown was inspired by Barbie dolls and classic Hollywood at Billie Eilish, Eilish's request. And she's pictured wearing a big 
sort of peach colored gown. She looks quite elegant in it, not like she's 19 and certainly different than a lot of her other photos where she's really tough looking. Looks like a peach wedding dress. Yeah, yeah, she looks, it's quite nice if you're into this stuff. And they've, another photo shows her with her, with her lipstick and her mascara and stuff like dressed up like a conventional fashion, which is not her usual thing. So the point is she agreed to do this only if Oscar de la Renta would finally commit to no more fur in their sales deal. So oh. their and the company agreed to do this. Good for her. So you bet good for her. I'm so proud of her, but I'll just give you the, the details and conclude. The company, Oscar de la Renta, they were working on discontinuing their, their fur for uh, years, but it still was a holdover. It still was profitable, but it was looked like it was going to happen at some time. She comes in and everyone just decides to say, okay, call it quits. We're going to stop with the fur. And she uh, wrote or text or whatever, snapped, thank you at Oscar de la Renta for designing this beautiful dress and bringing my ideas and vision to life. It was an honor to wear this dress knowing that going forward, Oscar de la Renta will be completely fur free. She continues, I am beyond thrilled that so-and-so, this is the team of Oscar de la Renta heard me on this issue and have now made a change that makes an impact for the greater good, not only for animals, but for our planet and environment too. I'm honored to have been a catalyst and to have been heard on this matter. I urge all designers to do the same. So this is awesome in my view, and I admire her and applaud her at the age of 19. So later I'm gonna play you the best of Billy. Eilish, Lori. Okay, moving on to a completely different story, the extinct Tasmanian tiger. That is the thylacine. You may have seen uh, photos of this, old photos of this animal. It had vertical stripes on the rear part of his uh, torso, and it looks sort of like a, like a dog, maybe, or wolfy, or something like that. Anyway, uh, in the news again, because the last film of this, which is the longest one uh, in existence, shot in 1933 at a zoo in Hobart, Australia, has been colorized and cleaned up and looks absolutely striking. You can watch this on, on YouTube. The original footage was captured on 35 millimeter film, like I said, in 1933, and uh, with the modern technology, 4K resolution, and a team that colorized it based upon paintings and descriptions and preserved specimens showing the, the colorings, they uh, created this. And it really looks like an, an amazing uh, modern film. These thylacines have an interesting history. They are native to Australia. And like most of these uh, predators, they were killed off as the people started uh, shooting them to protect their flocks, right? So same old story. And they are quite interesting from a natural history standpoint because they are marsupials. So they look like, like canids. They look like they would be a placental animal, and yet they are pouched. And that lineage split off like 100 million years earlier. So on the videos, you see an image of the wolf and an image of the thalassine, and uh, it's r remarkable. And so this is a great example of convergent evolution. Remember that, Lori, I know you do. So these are non-related species that end up looking and behaving and functioning the same in the environment because that's what evolution and that's what the pressures uh, demanded. So they've got a big, long mouth with a lot of teeth and specific teeth that can hold and grasp and 
you know, that sort of thing so they can succeed. So that's fascinating to me. The technical name is Thylacinus sinocephalus. I think I'm saying that right. Meaning pouched animal with the head of a dog. So fascinating story and interesting video and another sad example of extinction caused by, uh, by us. More with animals today, right after the break. Welcome back to the show. Almost every community has an animal shelter or two nearby. And chances are you visited a shelter to adopt one or more dogs or cats. But have you ever wondered about the early animal shelters? Like, what was the first animal shelter in the U.S. and what did it do? I want to welcome back to the program Kate Kelly, author, historian, and media personality. She runs a couple of websites, including America Comes Alive. Hey, Kate. Thank you very much, Lori. I'm delighted to be here. Kate, reading your piece about the first animal shelter in the United States, I think I have a new heroine in the world of animal welfare, Carolyn Earl White. Who was Carolyn Earl White, and what was her interest in animal welfare? You know, she was a very fortunate woman of the 19th century, because usually young women didn't exactly get to follow their knows with what interested them. But Carolyn was born to a well-to-do Quaker family in Philadelphia. And as, as you may or may not know, Quakers were very politically active for the most part, and they were also just more open to the idea of, of education for girls and that sort of thing. So, so Carolyn was unusual for her time, but not for her her religion and and that sort of thing and one of the things that we don't think about but but she would have been a little girl in about the 18 you know early 1840s she was born in 1833 and one of the things that bothered her enormously was walking down the street and seeing the wagons and the wagon owners beating or in in some way really mistreating their horses or mules these were beasts of burden the men needed them to do their work in order to make their deliveries through town and that sort of thing. And if they felt that the animal wasn't performing up to what they needed, they would beat them, they would do any kind of thing they could do, yelling, throwing them things at them and that sort of thing. And it really bothered Caroline to the point that she would be just horrified and would then try to avoid those streets because she remembered a particular scene with uh, you know, some sort of animal abuse happening. Yeah. So what was amazing was that she was able to live a life that could go on and, and figure out a solution to that sort of problem. So what did she do? Well, she had, by this time she had gone on, she had married, and the fellow she married was out of her religion. He was Catholic. He was an attorney, but he was also very open-minded, and he supported her in her serious belief in animal rights. And so he became aware that uh, Henry Berg in New York City was forming the, the American Society to, for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And so he suggested to his wife that she should go up and meet with Henry Berg. So she did. And so she came back to Philadelphia and began to set up the Pennsylvania Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Mm. She was soon joined by another fellow who was very interested in the cause, and his name was Colonel Richard Muckle. 
and they worked together to to work on this organization. When the uh, agreement, you know, the legal agreement had to be drawn up for the society, uh, Carolyn invited her husband to do the legal work. And when they specified the board of directors, her husband was on the board of directors, and so was Colonel Muckle, but she was not. Now, nothing is written about whether that upset her, but it was certainly an item of the day that women could participate and be active, but they couldn't do something like be in a board position. So whether she was offended by that or not, we will never know, but today we certainly would be. That's so interesting. So she's not even allowed to serve on the board of the organization that she started, being that she's a woman, and yet it grew very fast, didn't it? Yes, it did. That organization started growing, and she decided to fill another need, which was that in 1869, she started the Women's PSPCA. It later became known as the Women's Humane Society, and that was actually the organization that that offered the animal refuge, which is what she called it. She was particularly interested in small animals, um, first dogs, stray dogs. And, you know, in that day, again, we have to think about what it was like at the time. There were there was no rabies um, vaccine, vaccine, so animals were very likely to have rabies, and so they were a, a danger to each other and also to humans if, if there were too many or if they bit someone. And they also just had pretty much free reign of, of any community. There was no leash law. They would have been guard dogs, so they would have been important to families, but there would not have been a lot of control of them. And also there would have been no spaying. So there were lots and lots of puppies. So she started this women's refuge and set it up in Ben Salem, Pennsylvania, and offered a place to to bring stray animals and and was very successful in her effort at at taking care of that matter and people did bring animals and they were able to run the dog catcher version of their organization where they would would pick up stray animals and and so she really did fill a need uh, in that way they went on from that standpoint to fill another need and that was that she got a phone call running this organization and the doctor said you know we're doing a lot of medical testing here and if you would donate some of your extra dogs to us we would really appreciate it and with that (laughs) Carolyn had another cause which was forming the anti-vivisection society so she formed the this was a very active organization in London before it was in America but she was the one that first formed that organization that really is is one that still exists today to observe and prevent animals from being test subjects on on different things from makeup and and medicines and that sort of thing so so she started that as well and you just look at her life and you think wow she did so much and just by rolling from one experience to another and seeing a need she had all of these things that she was able to to formulate and things that are still with us today So Carolyn Earl White founded the first animal shelter. She championed other causes, like you mentioned, medical testing on animals. And she also was involved in the fight against the abuse of alcohol. Is that correct? Yes. She felt as though a lot of animal abuse um, was because men were drinking too much. And so she started establishing water fountains, figuring if you could give free options for people to drink something else, maybe they wouldn't imbibe as much as they did. The, the water fountains were multipurpose in the sense that there would also be a trough for 
you know, animal, I mean, for horses or mules or dogs. So that was also a good thing. Whether or not she accomplished the drop in animal abuse by trying to prevent men from drinking as much is certainly nothing that has been proven or or written about, but it was an interesting theory. And, of course, you know, lots of people went on to be active with the prohibition movement. So she certainly was not alone in her thinking. But this was also an era when, well, I guess we still have cockfights, and, and they had something called dog baiting where an animal would be tied up so that other animals could attack them. And, and she just felt as though all those forms of entertainment were particularly enjoyed by men who have drinking too much. Kay Kelly, I'm really glad you brought this to our attention. Carolyn Earl White is an amazing woman, and more people should know about her work as a pioneer in animal welfare. Thank you very much for coming on the show. I was delighted to be with you. Thank you. For the past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to raising public awareness of dog and cat overpopulation through ISAR's Worldwide International Homeless Animals Day. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. Welcome back to Animals Today. Dr. Robert Reed returns veterinarian. He is the medical director of VCA Rancho Mirage Animal Hospital in sunny and cool, not cool, Rancho Mirage, California. Hi, Dr. Reed. Hi, Robert. Oh, hi, Peter. Yeah, not, not very cool right now. <laughs> okay, so we wanted to talk a little bit about snakes, which is another special interest of yours. You have lots of special interests. They're very interesting fellow to talk to on a lot of topics and snakes. I think you are have a little bit of a warmer feeling towards snakes than I do. I am a little fearful of snakes, and, and but I'm getting over it. And this is the point I want to make to start a, our little discussion here. And that is when we moved into our home here in Palm Springs, it was a newly built home. And uh, so you know, obviously we've displaced the native animals and the animals are not used to us. And just next to the edge of the pool was a moderately sized snake, maybe four feet, probably not venomous, but I'm not 100% sure. But looking back, it had the stripe pattern that didn't look too ominous, I guess. But it was thrilling to me. And, and I had to sort of gather up my courage to pick the snake up with, uh, I think, my lacrosse stick. That's my trusty thing, spider removal and scorpion, you know, transport device. And I was able to get the snake into a box and uh, relocate it. It's quite thrilling for me. It's not like a relaxing experience for me. And then the more recent experience was at our friend's house where we actually had a, also, they and they're living not in a, regular suburban subdivision, but they're living really in the desert. And and so a rattlesnake took up a residence on their path. And this I knew was a rattlesnake. There was no no doubt. And and I mm-hmm. was able to pick this rattlesnake up with a pole and get it into a garbage can and, and roll it down quite a while and release it. And like I said, it's quite thrilling, but I'm proud of myself because I'm sort of overcoming my my fears. And 
we live down in the in the southwestern United States, surrounded by uh, snakes, and uh, we want to sort of coexist with them and not be too fearful and not go out and kill them. And that's one of your themes that you've stated many times over the years with us. Yes, that's true. And I think that you know, even though there are things in nature that that present threats to our pets and to us, there's plenty of room for us to live together. We just have to try to understand each other better. And, uh, and coexist gently. So we should expect to see snakes once in a while around our homes when we are in the southwestern United States. Yes, certainly, um, especially if you're living near open desert or a canyon or a rocky area, you, you certainly could expect to see snakes. Uh, whether you see them in your yard is determined by a number of factors. And there are some things that you can influence, and there are some things you can do to help protect your yard. Uh, I think certainly the the best thing you can do, and this is this is what I learned. You know, as you said, you know, you're you're not one who has grown up fancying snakes, but uh, um, as mo- many people are, there's a lot of people that don't like snakes for their own reasons, and that's perfectly fine. But I'm not one of them. I grew up loving snakes. Yeah, so I've always been around them, uh, you know, and I. I had to learn as a child that you know you have to use common sense when you're dealing with snakes uh, and try to understand what's going on with them so that you can be around them safely. One of the things that you know that you did that I think that I, I applaud is that you recognized this that this snake shouldn't be there. You very carefully removed it, released it to another area. I think anyone who's not completely comfortable with snakes should probably not try to handle a rattlesnake. Right. Um, but uh, you know, if you feel like in this situation you can relocate it, I certainly think that's better than than killing it. Uh, and if you're can you tell me, Peter, what time of year was that and what time of day was it that you saw that snake? Oh, yeah. It was summer and it was evening. It was dusk. I hardly, yeah, it was, hardly saw it. Just like right after dark? Yeah. So, you know, some useful tips to, for rattlesnakes, you know, to help understand when they're likely to come around. First, certainly proximity to the desert. Definitely that, that increases the risk because you know, snakes, they don't like to travel over open ground too much. You know, they don't like to be exposed, so, you know, if they don't have to go far to get to your yard, then that's just like their normal habitat, uh, particularly if your house or your housing development has recently been built in, in rattlesnake habitat. So that's, you know, that's definitely a possibility. Um, but, again, you know, if there, there's usually a reason why they come to an area, either the, the habitat is desirable as a, a masking area or a hiding area, but more importantly, um, a feeding area, so you know their normal food is going to be small mammals, primarily rodents, um, occasionally birds or reptiles, but it's primarily going to be small mammals. So, if your yard is designed so that it encourages you know inhabitation with small mammals, especially rodents, then it's going to be more attractive um, to rattlesnakes. So they you know they have to eat, and that's primarily what's going to drive them into a new area. Um, you describe this rattlesnake, you know, being out in the early evening, in the open, and, and that's a situation where the rattlesnake is trying to regulate its body temperature because it's dependent on the environment to do that. And normally a rattlesnake is only going to be happy moving around in temperatures between 70 and 90 degrees or so. Yeah. So say in the summer when you saw the snake, it's going to have been hiding away during the day because it's been too hot for it to be active. And in the early evening, as the sun goes down, it's 
cooling off a little bit. The snake is going to be out. It's going to stay warm by laying on an open area. But most of the time, it's either going to be moving through fairly covered areas or it's going to be hiding under something. In this case, you just happen to catch it at the right time, at that time of year where it's going to be out in the open, and it's comfortable enough being there because you're right next to its normal habitat. For most people who don't live right next to the desert, that's not likely to happen because, you know, the snake is not going to be comfortable in that environment and the habitat isn't going to mimic what they're used to so much. And at a different time of year, you might not have seen the same behavior because if if the nights were cooler and the days were warmer, that behavior would occur in the morning. Uh, because uh, the snake would be trying to stay warm at night and then would come out in the morning to warm up, uh, as opposed to where you saw it in the summer where it was coming out in the evening because it's cooler and a more appropriate temperature for them. Um, And remember also that in the middle of the winter, snakes are not likely to be active. Most of them go into a a state of dormancy in in the dead of the winter, and they're hidden away where we don't usually see them. In our area, that's going to be end of November to, say, late February. Yeah. And in the middle of the summer, when you were talking about their activity is going to be more at night because it's too hot during the day. In the spring and the fall, activity tends to be early morning, maybe evening, but not much in the middle of the day, not more than in the summer, but not a whole lot in the middle of the day, none at night because it's too cool, mostly early morning and a little bit at dusk. Robert, let's uh, speak a little bit, if you would, about snakes and dogs, particularly walking dogs on on trails, let's say, um, the risks that a venomous snake might pose to a dog. We hear about this all the time, and there are even training courses to teach your dog to be aware about snakes, stuff like that. Uh, Is is this risk uh, real, serious, overblown, hyped up, or uh, reasonable to be concerned about? There's certainly a risk. I think you, I always say, and this this goes along with my philosophy of of learning to live with nature, our pets and ourselves learning to live with nature, I think it's very helpful to understand your own environment, you know, what's going on in your proximity, so that you can try to understand where the risks might be. But if you're walking your dog in a neighborhood on a leash, it's not likely you're going to encounter a snake. Um, If you're walking your dog on a path that goes through a desert area or right next to a desert area or a wash or a canyon, it certainly is possible. Um, And for that reason, I, I always recommend that you, one, without fail, keep your dog on a leash, and it should be less than six feet long or no, no, more than six feet long so that you can pull your dog closer to you if you see it going towards something that might be a snake or toward a location that might be suitable for a snake. And that's usually going to be an overhanging or a brushy area or a bush that you really can't see under. You want to make sure you know what's under there before you let your dog go nosing in there. And for that reason... Um, you should try to stay on established paths that are broad enough or they're clear enough so that you can see what's in front of you and then make sure you keep your dog close enough to you so that it doesn't, if it does go up to something before you can uh, pull it back, that it, you know you get to it before uh, a snake might strike your dog because that's the situation where most dogs get bit. 
if they're going up to investigate a snake and they don't respond to the signal, which of course is the rattle. Um, not every rattlesnake will rattle for a variety of reasons, but most of the time they will. And, and I think that's where snake aversion uh, training comes in um, for dogs who get exposed to snakes and understand the smell, the sound, the appearance of the snake, and associate it with something negative that's not as severe as a bite. And that's really what the training does. It, it, they have a, a, a negative experience that's relatively harmless that's associated with the presence of the snake and again that's the presence uh, is an exposure to the smell the sound the appearance of the snake so the, the dog sees that animal again they won't go up to it that they will stay back from it doesn't mean you shouldn't keep your dog on a leash um, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't still stay on you know well cleared paths uh, but it does give you that extra time uh, so that your dog doesn't get right up to the snake yeah. before you notice. Okay, very interesting. Thank you for reminding me of the term aversion training, which I was, which was slipping my mind. We are speaking with veterinarian Dr. Robert Reed. After the break, we are going to resume our discussion, and we are going to start uh, asking Robert what we can do if our dog gets bitten by a snake, perhaps a venomous snake, while uh, walking out in desert paths. You are listening to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner from Animals Today. Every day in our community, countless animals are starved, beaten, and abused by people. And sadly, most of these cases go unreported, and the abusers get away with it. And in many cases, someone knew about the abuse but did not report it. So if you see someone hurting an animal, or even if you just suspect something, call the police or animal control right away. Animal abuse does not just mean physically abusing an animal. Neglecting animals can be just as bad. So if you see your neighbor's dog being underfed, left without water, or tied up in the backyard without protection from the elements, it's important to report that too. In many cases, you don't even have to give your name, and your phone call may save an animal's life. Remember, animals can't speak out for themselves, so reporting animal abuse can save lives. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Welcome back. We are speaking with veterinarian Dr. Robert Reed. We're talking about snakes. Uh, Robert's from Texas, and he uh, grew up around snakes and has a very deep appreciation for all living creatures. And I broke grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and it's taken me a little time to warm up to snakes, but I'm sort of getting there. But I still wonder, like uh, most people would, what you do, you're walking your dog, and it does indeed get bitten by a snake, perhaps a rattlesnake. What do you do? Well, don't panic. Uh, you know, the first thing you want to do is, is turn around and get back to your car. Uh, you want to contact a veterinarian, preferably one that is used to dealing with emergencies. Uh, because every dog that's bitten by a rattlesnake should expect to receive um, antivenin. Okay. And most of the time, they're going to require fluid therapy, which means hospitalization and pain relief. 
Um, rattlesnake bites are very treatable in dogs, but um, uh, the dogs can die from them, and the, the risk of, of dying is much greater if they don't receive antivenin. Uh, yeah. Certainly, a number, a large number, probably up to 20% of rattlesnake bites are non-venom-containing bites. So mm-hmm. not every uh, bite is going to have the same impact. And, and, of course, the location of the bite on the dog's body plays a role in the severity of, of the effect as well. But I think you have to treat all of them as an emergency and, and get to a facility that has the ability to administer antivenin. And again, that, that is done in, in conjunction with other treatments um, that require hospitalization, and most specifically fluid therapy and pain relief. Some veterinarians will use antibiotics, other treatments that, that they think the individual might need. But uh, the fundamental decision is that it, it should require treatment. It, it will require treatment. And so we could expect our local animal hospital that bills itself as an emergency facility to have antivenom on hand and have the knowledge on how to treat these things if they're like an emergency in, in southern california you should yeah, yeah. that that should be uh, available oh and one thing i failed to mention uh, peter that you know if you're on a trail or you're you know uh, away from your car um you don't really want to have your dog run back. Yeah, yeah. If you can carry the dog, that's the best thing. It's best to keep your dog calm, keep yourself calm, which will help keep your dog calm, uh, so that they don't get their heart rate up. Uh, that will work in, in their favor. And and it's not useful to try to draw the venom out. It's not useful to try to use a tourniquet. Um, it's best if you just calmly return to the car quickly but calmly and then get to uh, a veterinary facility. Yeah, okay, good advice. You know, uh, for people who live in areas uh, like your your friends uh, in the desert, where, you know, you're in snake habitat and it's really hard um, to be careful or to be sure that a snake's not getting in in your yard. And if you have pets that you're always worried uh, about exposure, you can build a rattlesnake barrier. Yeah, describe that. Fairly easily. Rattlesnake fence only has to be about three feet tall and it has to go you know, maybe at least six to 10 inches under the ground. Um, it has to have a smooth outside surface. It could be a fine mesh wire. Uh, and then it should have a little overhang at the top that goes out toward the wild area about six inches. Because rattlesnakes are not really good climbers. They, you know, unless there's some obstacle or, or plant material or some plant that they can crawl up on to get over, they won't be able to get over that barrier. And so you could, you could have that built around a portion of your yard or the perimeter of the yard and provide a dog safe area because it's you know uh, it's pretty hard for a rattlesnake to get beyond something like that and you know they will go through water so water isn't necessarily a barrier although it's not their favorite thing to do uh, water will not necessarily keep them out but uh, a small rattlesnake fence could definitely do that um, and if i lived in that area and i had dogs that i wanted to be able to play in the backyard i'd certainly consider them okay Okay, Lori? Yeah, that was good. Mm -hmm. Was there anything else, Robert? 
No, I mean, I've kind of rattled on quite a bit. Rattled on, that was good. <laughs> Did you mean that pun or? Unintentional. Okay, well, Dr. Robert Reed, thank you so much for joining us again on Animals Today and sharing your uh, snake expertise with us. Uh, you're welcome. I'm always happy to talk to you. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. wonder what you can do to be nicer to animals and to help them? Here are a few things you can do to show your appreciation to our furry friends. You can donate to or volunteer at your local animal shelter. Walking the dogs and playing with the cats is a meaningful way to make a difference in the lives of homeless animals in our shelters. You can be a foster parent if you have the extra time and space. Becoming a foster parent is a wonderful way to take some of the burden off our overcrowded shelters by giving an animal a loving place to live until a forever home is found. Increase your appreciation for wildlife by providing a welcoming space around your home for butterflies, hummingbirds, and other creatures. Also, by simply driving cautiously through areas populated by wildlife such as deer, you're acting with compassion. These are only a few ideas to encourage you to continue thinking about acting kindly towards animals. This message is sponsored by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit us at aianimals.org. And here are a few more ways to be kind to animals, beginning with this. Report suspected animal abuse or neglect. If you see an underfed dog or an animal left in a car on a hot day, report it right away. You can be saving a life. Try a vegetarian or, even better, a vegan diet, even just beginning with one day a week. Decreasing and then eliminating your consumption of animals is probably the best way to show your appreciation for them, and for the environment, too. Don't buy cosmetics or household products that have been tested on animals. That's easy these days, and there are apps to guide your purchases. And finally, don't wear clothing made from animals. Say no to fur and leather, and then you can give up wool and silk as well. It's easier than you might imagine. This message is sponsored by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit us at aianimals.org. Bark Potty is a, a specialized indoor pee pad replacement. That's what it is, made out of all uh, natural ingredients that you may want to take a look at. If your dog is uh, confined to an apartment during the day and, and can't get out, this product, it looks like a sort of thick mat, comes in a couple of sizes. It's brown in color because it's uh, natural. It's uh, naturally antimicrobial and really retains the odors and the moisture, and it can last for uh, quite a while before you uh, replace it. It really looks like it has potential to be a quite useful and an attractive place to have your dog uh, relieve him or herself. Comes in a couple of sizes, and there's training videos online, and uh, I would give it a try. I think I will give it a try. Are we getting samples of this, Lori? Okay. Well, we'll look to get our samples, and one of us will try them out. We'll report to you later. But anyway, the Bark Potty starts at $37 with a subscription, BarkPotty.com. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at AnimalsTodayRadio.com. AnimalsTodayRadio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's AnimalsTodayRadio.com. Thanks for listening.